God, I do just ask that you would speak to us today in dens all across our city, in this room where we are today. We're just asking that we would hear from you and that you would point us to the next right thing we're all supposed to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, recently, the American Bible Society released their State of the Bible Report. This is something they've been doing for 10 years now, and every year they kind of say, how is the church, how are Christians interacting with the Bible? Because they print a lot of these Bibles, they want to know if anyone's using them. And I was especially interested because in the age of COVID, where a lot of things have been canceled, we tend to have more time. I was curious, are people using the Bible more or less? So as I read the report, I was a little horrified to find out that during this time of COVID, the numbers of people that are actually picking up their Bible every day have dropped to the lowest they have ever seen since they started the report. They said less than one in 10 Christians are picking up their Bibles every day. And I guess I shouldn't be quite so horrified by that because um, as I look on Facebook and as I look in the world today, I'm, I'm very surprised by some of the things that I see people saying and the things that people are doing. Uh, and, and I'm just thinking to myself, man, we all need to be more active when it comes to our Bibles. We need to go grab them, we need to pick them up, and we need to read them more. You know, in fact, um, we see verses all over the place. We'll see them shown at sports games. We'll have someone reference a verse or write it on their shoes, or you'll see a politician on both sides. They'll, they'll recite a verse and then tell you what they think that verse means. Um, in fact, one of my favorite stories recently was a famous politician who'd been reciting their favorite verse for over 10 years and only recently found out that verse actually isn't in the Bible at all. Um, and I'm just wondering how many times they recited this and how many Christians were in the audience who never looked to see if that verse was in there. Uh, well, what does it look like to move from passive to active with our Bibles? Well, I think Acts 17.11 tells us, Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were true. And guys, we're living in an age where the cultural winds are blowing harder and harder, and the attention span is getting shorter and shorter. And so my exhortation this morning is that as I speak, you might say, man, I'm going to go look that up later. Or as other people speak, you would write down on a piece of paper or in your, your den, you know, grab an envelope, flip it over on a piece of paper to say, I'm going to go look that up later for myself, and I'm going to read it for myself and see what that means. Ephesians 4.14 talks about this idea if people don't go and read their Bibles, if they don't go look it up for themselves, what it'll be like. Ephesians 4.14 says this, As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. If you want to become mature in Christ, if you want to not be blown away by the cultural winds of the day, then you've got to do this. You've got to get into God's Word. You've got to be a good Berean. That's what that Acts passage was talking about, a good Berean. You've got to examine this for yourself. Now, good news and bad news. Uh, the, the bad news, this will take a little bit of time. Uh, the good news is it won't take as much time as you might think. You know, about a good cup of coffee, may, maybe a cup and a half of coffee, and you can accomplish a lot 
And, and Gary will tell me all the time the coffee is not necessary to Bible study. I find it helps tremendously. So we just have an ongoing discussion about the value of coffee. So definitely you do need a Bible. If you don't know where your I- yours is, I recommend uh, getting one. If you need one in the room, you can grab one in the seat in front of you, take it home with you. If you're online and your kids have lost theirs and you were borrowing theirs, we will mail one of these to you. So just want you to know that we want everyone in our church family to have a Bible. Um, so what I want to do today is I want to tell a story. I want to tell a story from the book of Judges. And part of the reason I want to tell a story is just one of the reasons I think people are not interested in the Bible is because they think it's boring. Now, most of your Bible is stories, and we are hardwired to enjoy a good story. That's why we love people to tell us a good story, and we watch great stories. And and the Bible is full of amazing stories. About 43% of your Bible is story. So what I want to do today is I want to share a story and give some tips along the way of how we can get more out of these stories and apply them to our lives. Now, the first tip I want to give, since I mentioned a minute ago that we're going to get a story from the book of Judges, is the first tip is we need to use a Bible dictionary. Now, raise your hand if you actually own a Bible dictionary. No judgment here. Oh, man, look at this. Like half the room owns a Bible dictionary. I am so blessed that you guys have a Bible dictionary. If you're not raising your hand at home, I encourage you, go buy a good Bible dictionary. They're only about $12 for the Kindle version. You can get them used. You can get them new. Uh, The one I'm using a lot these days is Nelson's Illustrated Bible Dictionary. This is not the greatest Bible dictionary. It's just a Bible dictionary. And my encouragement is go get a Bible dictionary. Now, why the heck do I need a Bible dictionary? Well, you may not know this, but the Bible was not written in American English. And one of the problems that we have engaging with the Bible is it's going to use words and phrases that we don't immediately know what they mean, or we assume we know what they mean. That's not what the Bible's talking about. So when I say we're going to the book of Judges, some of us, my kids thought this, we're talking about people with black robes judging a court case. And that's not at all what the book of Judges is about. It's not about a bunch of people with black robes. What what the book of Judges is about something different. If you grab your Bible dictionary and you flip open to the the, the little section on Judges, it'll point you to a verse like Judges 2.16, which says, Then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. So in in the mind of an Old Testament person, Judges were deliverers or leaders. These were active men. Or women, actually. If you go read the book of Judges, you'll find a woman in there as well. And, And another thing you'll find is a good Bible dictionary will orient you to what's happening in a book. It'll give a little opening to the book. And I found a a little graphic that is helpful as we jump into this story to give you an outline of where we're going. You see, the book of Judges was a time where there was no king in Israel. God wanted to be their king. And if you could pull up that graphic for me, uh, there was this spiral that happened. See, uh, Israel would abandon God, and they would start sinning. And then God would give them over to another nation. Then another nation would come in and oppress them. And it got so hard that the people of God would repent and turn back to God, and that God would raise up a judge or a deliverer that would then deliver his people. And then they have peace for a time, prosperity for a time. And then after a few years, guess what happened? They went back to abandoning God and sinning again, and the spiral happened again and again and again. And we're going to watch this spiral happen because we're going to do the story today from Judges 6, and the person we're going to be talking about is a man whose name is Gideon. 
So if you would all open your Bibles, let's practice this picking up. We're going to raise the percentage this morning. If you're home today, go and grab your Bible, open with me to Judges 6. It's in the first third of your Bible there, and we're going to read it together. Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. Now, my first tip was use a Bible dictionary. My second tip for you this morning is as you're reading these stories, notice details and ask questions. You see, the the authors of all these stories were master storytellers. They didn't waste words. And so when they give you detail, you want to go look at those details and ask questions. What are a couple questions that might pop into your mind just from this one verse? What was the evil? It popped in my mind. And who the heck is Midian? I know where Fort Worth is. I know where Canada is. What is Midian? Those are two questions pop in my mind. And where would I go get answers to those questions? The Bible dictionary helps, and the context helps. Both of these help. So as I'm grabbing my next sip of coffee, as I'm asking myself, what is the evil, and who is Midian, then, then I would go and look. And usually the context, the surrounding area the book will tell you. And if we go to Judges chapter 2, verse 11, it says this. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Great. Got it? I'm all good, except what the heck is a Baal? So then I go back, right? I got to go to another section. See, it does take a little bit of work, but it's worth it. Because as you start recognizing some of these things, as you go look up who Midian was and what the Baals were, then this will come up again and again and again. Because this is not one time and done. You see this Baal worship thing over and over again. So if you were to look these up, the Baals were local demonic deities that were worshipped by surrounding people groups that Israel was rivals with. So you can think of them as false gods or demons. And and Israel was worshipping these things. Now, who were the Midianites? Yeah, they were a neighboring group. You you see them. uh, They were desert dwellers. They had a lot of camels. Um, They were a neighboring group to the Israelites, and they were a rival to the Israelites. And and in many sense, the Baals were their God that they worshipped. So if you read on in the story, verses 2 to 10, then God sees Israel doing this evil, and he sends them into judgment. He disciplines his nation. He allows the Midianites to come in, and this is a bad judgment. The Midianites are going to come in year after year, month after month, and they're going to take every speck of food the Israelites have. So they get to harvest season. They've worked. They've planted. They've watered. They're ready to harvest the wheat. The Midianites come in and take it all. They don't just take the wheat. They take the donkeys. They take the livestock. They take it all. And they are not just kind about it. It's not like we're just taxing you. And No, they are vicious about it. And, And the Israelites are hiding out in caves, and they are frightened to death. And this happens year after year after year. And they cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, help us. Deliver us. And God hears the cries of his people, and he has a plan. And we see his plan unfold beginning in verse 11. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the wine press in order to save it from the Midianites. Anything strike you as strange about that opening story? We first get to meet Gideon, this man we're going to find as a a great hero and deliverer. Where do we find him? We find him in a wine press. And, And, you know, if you guys grew up in the city like I did, I've never actually 
had a wine press. You know, wheat and wine comes from the store, not from pressing anything. And so uh, if you guys don't know how wheat and wine work, um, uh, wine presses are holes in the ground. I've got a picture of one. And you would uh, put all the grapes in there and you would press them down in this hole in the ground. Now, wheat is not meant to be found in a wine press because wheat, I have a picture of that too, has kernels in it and it has husks in it. And the husk is the unhelpful part of the wheat and the kernels is the part you want. And so what you would do when you were trying to get the good part of the wheat is you would try and throw it into the air and the strong wind would blow away the light part, the husk part, and the heavier kernels would fall back. So if you are trying to do the wheat winnowing process in a hole in the ground, you found a really terrible place to do it. This is a horrible place to do wheat winnowing. Why is he there? He's frightened. He is scared. He is like, I want no one to notice me. I don't want a Midianite to notice me. I don't want anyone to see me. I am frightened and I'm scared. I'm doing this here because I'm scared. Let's read on and see what God is going to do to this scared man. Judges 6.12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Now, I, I don't know if God's being sarcastic here or if he's speaking in the future what Gideon will be. I know I'm sometimes doing this with my kids. They'll, I'll be like, hello, my child, O cleaner upper, you know, or I'll say, hello, child, O always following through, you know, and, and I'm being sarcastic when I'm doing that. I probably should not be. Uh, but I, I really do think God is speaking to him something that is going to be a future reality. And he is saying, Gideon, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. And let's see how Gideon responds. In verse 13, then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? Where are all his miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us. And given us into the hand of Midian. Isn't it interesting? Um, the Gideon is saying, Why has this all happened? I don't know why this has all happened. I'm just feeling like this has all happened for some reason. Earlier in the chapter, we know why this happened. Israel did evil. But Gideon is not owning that at this point. He's just saying, You know, I don't really believe God's with us, I don't believe God has heard us. Verse 14 The Lord looked at him and said, Go in this your strength. And deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? Now, did you catch the twist in the story? Kind of back to that tip of notice details. We started with the angel of the Lord talking to Gideon. And Gideon's just interacting with him. He's just talking with him. Now, now the writer of the story is letting you in on a little something that Gideon doesn't know yet. This is Yahweh himself. This is God appearing to Gideon and talking with him. Gideon doesn't know this yet, or he'd freak out. But, but this is an important tip that we know that God himself is saying, have I not sent you? I, Yahweh, am sending you. Verse 15, Gideon said to him, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? My, my family is the least in Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my father's house. God, you got the wrong guy. Yeah, I am not the guy with all the connections. I'm not the guy that can talk to people. I am the wrong person. You need to pick somebody better. Pick somebody with less flaws. Pick somebody who can actually do the thing you're talking about. I, I'm not that guy. Moses sang the same song when God called him at the burning bush. This is a constant song in the Old Testament. You see this over and over again. Like, God, I, I know that you, you say that you see into the heart of a man, but, but do you know me? I know me. Verse 16, 
But the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat Midian as one man. Now, Midian, we'll come to find out, had tens of thousands of soldiers. So God's saying one man versus 10,000, and you can win. And you will win because I'm with you. So Gideon said to this man, he doesn't know he's God yet. He knows this is messenger who's claiming to be from God. He said, uh, if now I've found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to you and bring out my offering and lay it before you. And, and the angel said, I'll remain till you return. So Gideon goes out and he prepares an elaborate feast. He says, I'm going to bring a big feast to this man. Now, remember, the Midianites have been taking all their food. But it is amazing that Gideon knows enough at this point to make a step. So he goes and gets a big feast for this messenger that he thinks is special. And he brings it to him and says, please show me a sign. The messenger says, okay, the angel of the Lord says, put on that rock. The angel of the Lord grabs a staff, touches it, and it immediately explodes in flames. And then the angel of the Lord disappears. Let's see if Gideon clues in yet. Let's see if this is one of the brighter bulbs that God has called into ministry. Verse 22, then Gideon perceived that this messenger was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Now Gideon knows now what we knew earlier in the story, that this is God and he has seen him face to face. And one of the rules of Bible times is when you see God face to face, you die. Because we are unholy, and God is holy. And when we come face to face with a holy God, bad things happen to us because of God's holiness. And Gideon is freaked out. Verse 23, But the Lord said to him, Peace be to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Now at this point in the story, Gideon knows that he's been called by God. He's declared it. He, he knows he's, he's heard from God. He is supposed to be the deliverer of Israel. He knows for a fact God has done a sign in front of him, but he doesn't know anything about the story. He doesn't know about what God's strategy is. He doesn't know if this is going to be like a, like a miracle thing. He doesn't know how this is going to happen. He just knows he's been called into ministry. And this is very similar to us. God doesn't usually lay out the 10-point plan of how we're going to accomplish what he's calling us to accomplish. He just tells us the next thing. So Gideon does what every hero of the faith does at this point. He goes to sleep. And that night, God gives him a dream. And in that dream, he gives him his first assignment. And his first assignment is he is to go to his dad's altar to Baal. We now find out his dad had an altar to Baal. Remember how Gideon was like, why is all this judgment on us? Why has God abandoned us? Your dad has an altar to Baal. And God says, Gideon, I want you to get your dad's bowl, your family bowl. I want you to go tear that altar to Baal over, knock it down, destroy it. And in its place, I want you to make an altar to Yahweh, to the true God. Now, this is a, this is a big ask of Gideon because he's now got to act. For above now, he's just been saying, okay, great, I'm in. But now he's got to do something. And so God gives him this first thing he has to do. And so great, brave Gideon, he does it. He does obey. He gets the bull. Um, but one little thing is he's kind of afraid, so he does it in the middle of the night. So he goes at midnight when no one's around, and when he's very quiet about it, he pulls down the altar, and then he builds God's altar, and then he goes and hides. So the next morning, they're like, what happened? What happened to the altar of Baal? And Gideon, they, they are thinking, what should we do with this man? Now, one of the things that you have to notice in the story of Gideon is there's things happening behind the scenes. So God, Yahweh, has his people. 
And, and he has his people, and his people are needing to be delivered from this neighboring nation who is serving another God. So when God starts his plan of deliverance, he goes and says, Gideon, I want you to poke Baal in the eye. I want to create a conflict with this other nation so that I can deliver my people. And whatever principality or power is animating the Baal worship gets the hint. Because the next thing that we see in the story is a battle brewing. You'll see that in Verse chapter 6, verse 33. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the sons of the east assembled themselves, thousands of thousands of soldiers, and they crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel. One just interesting thing to note when you see battles happening in the Old Testament is they have no rules. The first rules, this is an interesting thing, the first rules to ever be given to battlefield etiquette and things that we would think of as battlefield you know, laws were given to the Israelites in the Old Testament. Before that time, there's never any rules. It was vicious, it was awful, it was gory, and it was scary. And now we have Gideon having kicked off a massive battle with the Amalekites and the Midianites. And, and it's interesting, back to my tip, remember, notice places. So where is this all kicking off in? The Valley of Jezreel. Well, if you go look up the Valley of Jezreel in your dictionary, you'll find out that it's kind of an interesting place. It's also called the Valley of Megiddo, and, and scholars believe this might be the place on earth that has experienced the most battles. Another interesting thing is this shows up again and again and again. In fact, it's going to show up in the future in Revelation. If you guys have ever heard of something in Revelation 16, 16, there is a battle called Armageddon. And this is the location of this battle where God will, again, face off against a principality and a power. And he will, again, win the victory. But Gideon doesn't know that yet. He just knows it's setting up and a battle is brewing. So he looks over, and Gideon again does the brave thing. Let's see what he does. Chapter 6, verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said... Behold, I am laying a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece alone, and it's dry on all the ground, then I will know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. Now, as you're reading the story, God has done this routine already. Gideon has already declared that he's heard from God. He knows what God's will is. He knows what God wants him to do. And now he's just freaking out. And he's like, now it's getting real. Now it's game on. And, and as he's thinking about this, he said, God, I'm just struggling with this. I'm fearful. I need a sign. And, and let's see, you know, if this was my kids, I'd be like, I've told you what to do. Go. And I would snap my fingers and hope my kids obey. Or there would be some sort of consequence, right? Let's see what God does with Gideon. Chapter 6, verse 38. And it was so. What? God did it. He stooped to Gideon's level and gave him the sign. And when he arose early the next morning and squeezed that fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. So now Gideon's got it. Now he's going to head on to victory. Now we're ready. Verse 39. Then Gideon said to God, do not let your anger burn against me that I may just speak one more time. Please let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece and let the ground be all wet. Because maybe I misunderstood the sign, and maybe I misunderstood you before, and maybe it really wasn't you who burned up the altar sacrifice, and maybe uh, I just need to know one more time. And God did it that night. 
for it was dry only on the fleece, and dew was on all the ground. Now, we haven't finished the story yet, but I want to highlight an important thing as you're reading stories. The, The storyteller wants you to understand a point of the story. The story is designed to, say, to share something and tell you something. I want to give you a couple options. We don't know the end of the story yet, but I'm going to give you a couple options of what the story of Gideon might be all about. Option A is a story is about how to make decisions and determine God's will for your life. So that's option A. So is the story of Gideon about this is how I get God's will for my life and know what to do? Or is it more option B, how God uses deeply flawed and fearful people to do great things? See, sometimes we go to the Bible with our own agenda. And we're like, you know, God, I just really need to make this big decision. I really need to to figure this thing out. And I go and read myself into the story too quickly. And and I did this in college. I mean, I was like, had some big decisions to make. And I was like, man, I I read this fleece story. And God God used that. And it worked. And what kind of fleeces? I don't have a fleece. Maybe like like a hoodie would work. And I put the hoodie in the backyard. And I did this kind of thing because it's in the Bible. And, and I just want you to know that just because you read something in the Bible doesn't mean it's something we are to do. The storyteller would say, no, this is a sign of weakness. This is a sign of don't do this. You know, Gideon himself says, God, don't get angry with me for putting this out another time. You know, and so just be notice that. You know, when we go to the Bible with our own agenda, uh, we can be thrown off by the point of the story. See, I would suggest to you the point of the Gideon story is God uses deeply flawed and fearful people to do great things. 1 Corinthians 1, 27b and 29 really highlights this for us. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong so that no man may boast before God. God knew how weak Gideon was before he picked him. God knew that. You know, he wasn't surprised by Gideon's fearful nature and his flaws. And he said, I'm going to use this broken man to deliver my nation. Now, I don't have time to go at this pace for the rest of the story, and I don't want to leave you hanging, so I'm going to summarize the rest of the story because it's a great story. I mean, if you do this and you're like your cup of coffee, you might need three cups of coffee for this story because it is that good. You won't want to leave to the end of the story. So Gideon raises an army of 32,000 men to fight the Midianites. And he marches them up to Midian camp, and God says to Gideon, Gideon, good start. Um, We have too many soldiers, which is kind of odd. There's never been a general in history that says, I got too many soldiers. What am I going to do with all these soldiers? But God says, you got too many soldiers. So go to your army and tell them whoever is scared, send them home. Immediately, 22,000 leave. Now he's down to 10,000 men. So Gideon's thinking, okay. I'm kind of impressed that Gideon did it, though it took like 17 confirmations for him to get there. I am impressed at this point that he is doing what God's telling him to do. So God says again, okay, too many soldiers still. 10,000 is too many. So I want you to take him down to the water. I want you to let them all get a drink of water. And anyone who bends over and drinks from his mouth in the river, send him home. Anyone who cups his hand and drinks from his hand, keep him. Well, only 300 cup their hand. All the people who don't know how to drink normal from a river, that's who God wants to keep. And all the normal people God wants to send home. So Gideon is left with 300 oddballs. 300 against this massive Midianite army. And it gets worse. You keep reading. And he says, okay, 
battle plan. So I know you thought you had swords and shields and all this armory stuff. Here's what I want you to take to battle. I want you to grab a trumpet, so you can think in our language like a guitar, and I want you to grab like a torch, you can think like a flashlight for us, and, and, a, and kind of a, a thing to hide the torch in, a clay pot. So I want you in one hand to have your trumpet, and your left hand to have your clay pot and torch, and we're going to go fight a battle. This is a horrible plan, except this is what God wants to do. This is God telling people, I want you to do this different because I am leading you. I am your deliverer. So Gideon's like, okay, I got it. And, and you can just know from how flawed he is that he is freaking out. Like, this is really the plan. So God, out of his kindness, goes to him and said, okay, Gideon, if you're afraid, and we all know he is, if you're afraid, I want to give you one more sign. I want you to go down into the Midianite camp, and I want you to go listen to what they're saying. And Gideon says, I'm afraid, I'll go. And so he goes, grabs a friend, goes down to the Midianite camp, and here's what he hears. He hears one of the Midianites says, I had this weird dream that a loaf of bread rolled down the hill, crashed into the camp, crashed into my tent, and flipped it over. What do you think that means? I would probably said, too much pizza, staying up too late, I don't know. His friend, the Midianite's co-soldier, he says, oh, I know exactly what that means. God's given the battle to Gideon. We're going to lose tomorrow. And Gideon's like, Wow! They're prophesying to me the victory. So he goes back. He tells all his fellow soldiers, God's given us this victory. He's given me another sign upon another sign, upon another confirmation, on another sign. Gideon goes, Judges chapter 7, verse 22. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled. Now, I want to just summarize a couple of applications. Because when you get to the end of a story, you want to ask yourself, God, what does that mean for me today? Like these stories are supposed to get inside of us. They're supposed to help us think and understand something about God and something about us. And I want to give you some applications that you might have some other ones that you've written down as we go. But just one application for me is that God uses flawed people. You were worshiping earlier, and Larry had this lyric, you know, failures and addictions, we lay them at the cross. God uses flawed people all the time. God sees flaws in me that I don't even think are flaws. I think they're kind of features. And, and this is a thing my wife will ask about all the time, like, as I don't see things as flaws, God said, yeah, that's a flaw. And he uses me anyways. And he uses you anyways. Here's another thing. Oftentimes we think you got to get into church. You got to be discipled for 10 years. You got to be mentored. You got to be a certain place for God to use you. That's not true. God uses people all the time that have glaring flaws. And he does them because he enjoys using the weak to shame the strong so that he gets all the glory. If you came in and you were super Christian and you had all the maturity in Christ, God would get less glory than from using a weak and flawed person. It's amazing. We just, a couple weeks ago, Steve was preaching. And when God needed to kill a giant, he got an undersized shepherd boy to do it. You know, it's amazing. All the time when God needed to birth a nation, he got Abraham and Sarah, a really old couple who couldn't have children. And that's how he decides to make a nation. He does this all the time. God uses people in spite of their flaws so that he gets the glory, not us. Another application for today is when God is with you, you cannot fail. When God's with you, you cannot fail. If Gideon had gone by himself, he would have won that battle. 
God let him take 300 because I think he just had pity on the poor man. Like there's at some point you're just, just let him have his 300, even, you know, torches and stuff. But I mean, God, if he's with you, you can't fail. You know, we saw in the announcement video that we're needing 50 people for Adventureland. You know, we're needing 50 people to preach the gospel to the next generation, to preach the good news of Jesus Christ to students who will later be doctors and lawyers and policemen in our, in our nation. You know, most people come to Christ before age 18. And many of us heard that and thought, yeah, but what if I don't speak it right? What if I mess them up? What if I get God wrong? You know, some of us heard all sorts of things. I'm just saying, man, if God is prompting you to sign for Adventureland, he will help you. If God's prompting you for another ministry, if God has put something on your heart and you're thinking, yeah, but I, don't, I think I could fail. I think I'd fall on my face. I might look, you know, different. You know, uh, you know I just encourage you today. God is the one, if he's drawing you, if he's prompting you, if he's encouraging you, then he will make it happen. He will empower you and give you the grace to do the ministry. The final application for today is do what God tells you to do. And I'll just put this little caveat, even if it's a little weird. Even if it's a little weird, a lot of the stuff that God told Gideon to do was a little strange. And, and I just want to tell you, it's weird to live in America as a Christian. You will look odd. It's weird to get up in the morning and read the Bible instead of Fox News or CNN. That's weird. It's weird to handle your finances God's way. That's weird. It's weird to handle your relationships God's way. It's weird for you to get on Facebook and not be pushed around by the cultural you know, typhoon-level winds blowing around, and you stand for God, and you stand in your workplace for the gospel. That's weird. And, and I just want to say, sometimes I think we want too much to be accepted by one another, to be liked by people. And, and instead, I think God's calling us to be a little different, to speak differently, because God um, has something different he wants to do through us. So we're supposed to be a little different. You know, God finally chose to follow God. It took him a while. God stooped to his level time and time again. And, and God chose to use him. And if you read the end of the story, uh, Gideon didn't get fixed this side of heaven, by the way. You know, his flaws remained into chapter 8 and beyond. And what's encouraging to me is he makes it to the Hebrews 11 Hall of Fame. You know, when God talks about who his heroes are in Hebrews 11. Gideon makes the list. I was telling my dad I'm preaching on Gideon, and dad's like, really? That guy wasn't that great. I'm like, I know. It's crazy, isn't it? Um, and I'm just like, man, all, this, all these flaws, and yet we could make it to God's hall of fame. And I think that's what I, I really have in my heart for us today, that we would take that as like, we're going to start with just picking up our Bible, and we're going to say, God, what do you want to say to me today? We're going to be active with this. And then when you prompt me, to do things your way. I'm just going to immediately do it. I'm not asking for 14 confirmations of six fleeces and three dreams and another interpretation. And just, we're just going to do it. We're just going to simply do what God's leading us to do. And then finally, we'll be at peace and trust that when he leads us into the battle, when he leads us into these places, we will be victorious. And before I close this in prayer, I just want to say, if you are new this morning, I would just love to hang out with you and get to know you a little better. I got to hang out with a newcomer yesterday and hear some of their life story. Last Sunday, I got to meet a newcomer. I just love 
new people that are coming being part of our church family. If you're new online, I do encourage you, would you just reach out to us, reach out in the Facebook comments, um, and we would love to connect with you this week. You know, we are in the office. Our staff would love just to hang out with you and help you get connected with us. I'm going to be right across the parking lot at the newcomer area. So as you leave today, if you're new, we'd love to hang out with you, give you a gift, and uh, pray with you before you leave. So let's all stand for a minute. I just want to pray for us, and then we're going to dismiss by rose as we leave. God, I do just pray that you would spark in every person in home right now, every person in the room right now, uh, just a love for your word. That we would enjoy, it wouldn't be a, a trial, it wouldn't be a, a, a chore that we'd hate, but it'd be something we enjoy. Because these stories are meant to excite us and amaze us and grow our faith. I do pray our faith would grow during this season and that we would uh, be active in our listening as, as we hear things out there in the world, that we would then pick up our Bibles and read them for ourselves and see if they're true. Would you help guard our minds against anything of the enemy that is trying to distract us from what you're calling us to? And, and I mostly just pray that you would now give us the faith, give us the confidence, the courage to take the next step in what you're calling each and every one of us to do. We'll preach last week that you've, got, you've created us for good works this week to do. And I'm just praying that today we'd have the faith to walk those out well, to take that next step in ministry. In Jesus' name, amen.